Well, hi, church. Good to see all of you here today. Um, this is the uh, start of what we call Holy Week, <clears throat> Palm Sunday. And um, I just want, before I get rolling here, to let you all know that next weekend some cool things are happening. First, uh, coming up, is our Good Friday service on Friday. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it will be at Thrive Space, which is the corner of 81st and Aspen. And um, what, time, what time are we starting at, James? 6.30, thank you. Uh, we'll be there at 6.30, and um, I will be there at 6.30, because I've just been told I need to be there at 6.30. So anyway, we'll be there. Um, we're going to do about a 45-minute service or so. It may be standing room only, which would be a totally cool thing. But here's the thing. Don't miss it. Get it on your calendar, because what we're, what we're attempting to do here is to try to get our hearts ready for Resurrection Sunday. So if you can at all make it, um, I suggest you do because it's going to be pretty meaningful, I think. Um, we're pretty excited about that. And, uh, and then, of course, that is the precursor to Resurrection Sunday, so, which is kind of like our Super Bowl, by the way. It's uh, the Super Bowl in the church, the highest, holiest day of the year. And um, this morning I was telling our team in our uh, prayer time before service, I actually wrote this in my journal today. I said, <clears throat> I said something about um, this idea of what God is doing. And last week, if you remember, I talked about the parable of the prodigal son and the fact that the prodigal son shows up and there's this big party. And here's the deal. We're going to provide the venue and the people and God's going to throw the party. Does that make sense? Because I think sometimes we get, we get a little backwards. We think we got to throw the party and Jesus is going to show up. No, 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 no. Jesus is the one who's throwing the party. We're going to be there and we're going to see what he does. And that's kind of what we're going to think about Resurrection Sunday. So if you've got friends or family members, that would be a great time to invite them because we're going to have a little bit of a party. Um, it's a big deal. And on top of it, um, afterwards, we're doing a carnival. Not just for kids. Um, uh, adults can participate too, from what I've been told. And a couple years ago, we had, uh, or I guess it was last year, we were going to do an Easter egg hunt, but Mother Nature was uncooperative, as she can be this time of year, right? Hence, yesterday. And um, instead of doing an Easter egg hunt, we ended up doing some games. How many of you remember this? We we're doing some games. We enjoyed that so much, we're going to do it again this year. And uh, it's a great time for us to interact with one another in kind of a casual setting. It's all taking place somewhere over there. And uh, after service, we're going to do that. Um, so come for Jesus, stay for the carnival. Okay? So keep that in mind. Try to get it on your calendar. It would be a great time for you to invite family and friends to hang out and to be a part of that with us. What I find so interesting, though, is that every year, it seems, Easter tends to sneak up on me just a little bit. Now, our staff, we start talking about Easter a couple of months prior, and of course, Easter changes. Sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late, and you know, that sort of thing. But I swear, every year, I'm like, oh, Easter's just in like a week or two weeks or something like that, and I'm kind of surprised about it. Now, my, my birthday happens to be at the end of, the, end of March, and a couple of times in my lifespan, it, uh, my birthday's fallen on Good Friday, and once, if I remember correctly, once it fell on Easter Sunday. Now, for some reason, I have no problem remembering Easter when it's around my birthday. 
I don't, I don't know why that is, but that's just kind of how I, I am. You connect those, those two sorts of things. And, and yet, I'm still surprised when it's, when it's Easter. And I kind of think that it might be the weather or the events that are going on, or maybe it's just the thought of summer. And, and, and I, I remember hearing about Fat Tuesday, you know, the start of the Lenten season and whatnot. And, I remember, and then I literally forget about it until, until Easter comes. Until, of course, you know, my birthday's around that same time. And uh, today um, is what we call Palm Sunday. We just saw it in the video. Starts the Holy Week. And, and really what this is about, there's a, a passage that occurs in each of the Gospels that talks about Jesus entering Jerusalem. And he enters with great fanfare. And as Dan mentioned in, in our scripture passage, there's some prophecies about this. And Jesus actually shows up using royal imagery. It's almost as if he's going to his coronation. And the people are excited about this because they truly believed that this miracle-working rabbi was going to help them throw off Rome, the superpower in the Mediterranean world at the time. Jesus was going to go ahead and, and kick them all out and restore Israel to be a great nation like it was under his ancestor David. That's the thinking that's going on. When they thought in terms of Messiah, they thought in terms of political or military. Keep this in mind. This is really important. Surely, surely this reputable, miracle-working rabbi would throw off the chains of the oppression the boot of Rome off the neck of Israel. Surely this was... But, but of course we know that it actually starts a remarkable epoch-shattering story. And we find this triumphal entry in, in Matthew chapter 21. However, there's this scene that plays out in Matthew right before the triumphal entry. And it's a story, actually a couple of stories, that's really worth paying attention to. And I want to I wanna draw your attention to it as it sets us up for this Holy Week. Okay? So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. It's a series of three little stories, and I think um, this might give us some insight into what's going on at least from Matthew's perspective. Quick note, Matthew, this biographer of Jesus, is Jewish himself, and he is writing to an audience of skeptical Jews. And you've got to keep that in mind. His audience is a skeptical Jewish population. And so he's going to emphasize certain things that other biographers of Jesus do not, right? Keep this in mind as we're going along. So I'm going to actually start in verse um, 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death <clears throat> and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be uh, mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Stop right there, because that's it. That's all he says, Matthew. That's all he writes. There is no reaction from the disciples, which seems like 
something that's pretty odd when you're dropping that kind of truth. So, guys, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to be arrested. Some really bad things are going to happen to me. And Oh, yeah, by the way, they're going to kill me, but it's going to be okay in the end. No response. At least Matthew's not recording it. Now, keep in mind, he's writing to skeptical Jews, so maybe it doesn't matter in this particular part of the story to them that this is what's going to happen. There's a little foreshadowing going on. So remind, you're a skeptical Jew. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, whatever, kind of a thing. But you're reading this, so maybe it doesn't matter to them. But it's still odd when we read it. Would you agree? It's kind of strange. No response at all. There's no indignation. There's no horror. There's, no, there's just kind of, you know, maybe blank stares, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But then something even more odd happens. I guess I would call it kind of strange. Moving into the next little section. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this is James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answer. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now hold on a second. This is interesting. So, we're going up to Jerusalem, all these things are going to happen, and the next thing you know, a Jewish mother is trying to take care of her boys. Can you imagine this? I mean, I can, a little bit. This kind of, you know, you never call, how come you never call? And are you eating because you don't look like you're eating. <laughs> Jesus, I've got these two boys, and I really want them to, you know, for whatever reason, they all have Jewish, or all the Jewish um, people in my head are have like, like New York accents or something. I don't, I don't know why that is. Anyway, the point is, is that you have this mother who comes before Jesus and James and John. And by the way, there's some evidence to suggest that, that these are some of the youngest of Jesus' disciples. John could have been about 13 years old at this time. So we're talking about two young boys. And she makes a request. Can you, can you put them at the right and left-hand side? And Jesus makes this comment. I think it's really an important comment. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Because there's a price that has to be paid in order to get there. And he says, can you drink from this cup? Now, if you remember right, when Jesus is in the garden, in the garden before his arrest, he's asking God to take the cup from him. Can you drink from that cup? And they're like, oh yeah, we can do that, because they have no idea what he's talking about. Like a lot of teenage boys. All guts and no brains. And they think that they can, and he's like, oh yeah, you're, you're going to drink from this cup. There's things that are going to befall you too for my name. John is exiled later on. It's the Isle of Patmos where he sees a vision. We call it the Revelation of John. It's the last book of the Bible. And he's been through some stuff. He has seen persecution in the church. They all have stories. You don't know what it is that you're asking for. Not in this case. Now, what's so interesting to me is that um, <laughs> when the other disciples heard about this, oh boy, 
When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> and remember, it wasn't the two brothers who did this, it was their mom. But they're still ticked off at the two brothers. Okay, fair enough. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I get this vision where a teacher has to call the class to order again. All right, let's get down to basics again. It reminds me of the whole Vince Lombardi. Gentlemen, this is a football. You know, this is the basics. Okay, let's do this one more time because apparently you guys haven't, haven't, haven't gotten it. And they're all in this uproar, and he has, to, he has to go through this one more time as if, look, you guys are caring about the wrong things. And, and I guess in my mind, I kind of have this exasperated Jesus who's kind of talking about it, who's like, three years, fellas, really? I mean, come on. You've seen me go through this. We've talked, we've talked, we've talked about this. You know, we get this idea that it's somehow one is going to have more power because of where they're seated. Didn't, didn't we talk about this before? I'm sure that we did. And yet here we are again. And then Matthew changes the scene, almost abruptly. That's very interesting. He has this little chat with the disciples. And then if you notice, <clears throat> he goes on. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. They received their sight, and they followed him. Now, that very story actually appears in um, a couple of, uh, um, of the biographies of Jesus and the other Gospels uh, with some minor details. Um, there might be more than one. There might be one. The, the wording is a little different, but they all share the same thing. You've got somebody or somebodies who are blind. There's a crowd that tries to shush them, and then Jesus hears them, and eventually heals them. And I find this is a really interesting um, passage in verse 20, or in chapter 20, because you actually have two um, stories, two sets of men. And these two stories are set between Jesus' prophecy, his prediction of his death, and the triumphal entry. Keep this in mind. They occupy that space in between these two stories, right? Two men and two men. Well, here's my question. Which one of them were really blind? Both of them were in their own way, weren't they? First, they were blind to Jesus' real purpose in his pursuit. The rest of them, too. All 12 of them missing it. That's why Jesus has to open up that can of worms again. 
The latter is blind literally. And you have to remember, this author does not give a random grouping of stories. There is a purpose here. There is a purpose why this is between Jesus' prediction of his death and why it's before the triumphal entry. You have to keep that in mind. There's two stories of two men, and at their center is blindness. Different kinds of blindness, to be sure, but Matthew's trying to tell us something. It's no coincidence that these two stories precede Holy Week. Because some of the, the people who are going to greet Jesus at the gate are like the disciples, where they're, they're blind to the real intent of the Messiah. It's not political. It's not military. There's something else going on. It's something so much more. They're going to be the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, who are completely blind to the fact that he is the Messiah, the one that's been promised, the one that they've been hoping for. And of course, there are going to be some, like the Romans, who are blind to any spiritual reality beyond the sword. Think about that. You've got this reality that's beginning to occur, and you have this blindness that precedes all of it. Matthew is trying to tell us something. Now, a lot more we could probably say about that, but I want to offer a, a final thought. Do you notice the question that Jesus asks in both stories? He asks um, the mother of James and John, what is it that you want? The word in Greek is, what is it that you wish or desire or hope for? It's the same word that he asks the blind man. What is it that you wish that I would do for you? What is it that you desire for me to do for you? Very similar phrase. And I wonder, there's this little part of me that says, I wonder if Jesus is still asking that question. I wonder if he's still asking that question of all of us in some way. And so my thought was, <clears throat> this year, when we go into the party that is Resurrection Sunday, if maybe... Maybe you could answer this question. What do you want the Lord to do for you? What is it that you want the Lord to do for you? Now, here's the deal. We, we come here on Sunday mornings and we, we praise the name of Jesus and we sing songs. You can tell which songs are sung in my house quite a bit, rather loudly, right? <clears throat> but we do this. And we, we, we praise the name of Jesus, and we, we choose to follow him. But at the end of the day, the question is that Jesus poses to all of us, what do you want the Lord to do for you? Now, here's the, here's the rub, though. And I think this is where it gets, I don't know, problematic or complex. Because you could ask for things like power and position or something you know, more general, like maybe you want a new job. And that might be appropriate for some of you. Yeah, I might need a new job. Or a new opportunity. Or maybe just a change in scenery or something you know, along those lines. Possible. Or, or, we could ask for something real. 
I want you to notice what the blind men said. Because those blind men are sitting by the road, hoping that somebody would give them something. So they could have said, when Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, we could, we could use a bundle of money, and then we could get ourselves set up, and we wouldn't have to do this anymore. That would have been practical, right? Or they could have said, hey, we could use a little help. You know, we just need, you know, a family member to take us in, or we need somebody out here to kind of help us navigate this. And maybe they had that, maybe they didn't, but they could have asked for that. Right? But they didn't. They asked for the real need. We want our sight. That doesn't fix everything because ultimately, it's not like winning the lottery here. If they got their sight, they'd probably still have to go to work and they would still have to take care of themselves and they'd have to take care of their loved ones and they'd have to be productive members of society and all of that. They didn't ask to win the lottery. They asked for their sight, which was real and allowed them to become part of the community once again. They asked for something real. So maybe, just maybe, if you're going to answer this question, you can get past the superficial stuff and really get to the heart of the matter and be honest with yourself and be honest with Jesus. Because you know what? Each one of us has something. We all have a real need. Some of you may just say, God, would you please show me what my real need is? Because I know something's off. I just don't know what it is. Could you please reveal that to me and help me with that? That's a real request. I'm being taken advantage of in this relationship, whatever that relationship is. And I, God, I need freedom. I'm estranged from a loved one and I could really use some reconciliation. I'm sick. I need some healing. I don't see a way out of this, whatever this is for you. And God, I just need some hope. I think this is an appropriate question because Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is about empty tombs. It's about impossible being possible, about watching a person die, witnessing it, seeing him being buried, coming back a few days later, and he's not there anymore. Oh, and by the way, I think that tomb is still empty. I'm just going to say, I, I believe that. And so what impossibility do you have? What is that thing that's deep down inside and you just know that it's off and it's just, ah, uh, I want... Can we deal with that this year? Can we deal with that this time around? I, I don't know what the answer is for that, but I do know the one who can answer that. And he's saying that same question to you that he said to both the mother of... James and John, and to the blind men, what is it that you want me to do for you? Let's forget about right and left hand positions of power. Let's get down to the thing that really matters for you, what your set of circumstances, let's deal with that one. Can we finally do that? Because guy's kind of waiting for that, I think. He, he knows what the need is. He had blind men by the side of the road. Really, they're calling out to him. It's pretty obvious, and yet Jesus still asks the question. Do they recognize what it is that they need? It's the same question he asks us. So, maybe this year, 
this holy week? You could answer God when He says, what do you want me to do for you? You know, every single week, um, Pastor James and I, we, we go and we stand back in the, in the back. and We do that to pray with people. There is no pressure. We don't do things like altar calls and that. That's just, not our, that's just not our style. But we do go back there so that you've got a point of connection. <clears throat> Whatever it is you're talking about, we don't go talking about with other people. That's, that's not the issue at all. Instead, what we do is we pray with you, trying to help you answer this question. We want to be a resource and so I just encourage you, if you got that thing, it's bugging you, maybe we could pray for you. It's up to you. No pressure. And I've said this before, if you get up and walk back there um, while everybody else is singing, nobody's thinking about you and your issue and, oh, I wonder what they're struggling with. No, nope. mm-mm. And even if they did, what does it matter? What is the Lord going to do for you? It's about you and Jesus, not about what other people think. And we would love to partner with you, walk with you, be involved as little or as much as you want us to be. That's our privilege. That's why we do this. You know, I, I keep thinking about this. When I signed up to do this job, it wasn't to, you know, have a cool church. We do. We got a cool church, but but that wasn't the reason. I love our music. I love what we do in kids. I love hanging out with you. But what I want to see is I want to see God do things for people that they need. Those are the stories that I get excited about. That's what I signed up for. So whatever it is with you and your set of circumstances. What do you want the Lord to do for you?